This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Hosted by two terrible Brits, that's me, Matthew O'Connell, and my co-host, Stuart Baldwin. Each episode features a guest interview on topical matters concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality in general, or a lively discussion between the hosts, mixing insight with banter. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook, download all episodes for free at SoundCloud, and find out more, as well as lots of writings on topics explored in the episodes, by visiting our dedicated site, posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me, if you wish to work with any of the themes that have come up throughout these episodes. Find out more at O'ConnellCoaching.com. Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast. And on this episode, we'll be continuing our year-long journey through interviews, discussions and conversations with a whole range of guests from the academic world. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we're just talking about academic concerns, but as regular listeners will have noted, we're constantly bridging the gap between the intellectual and the practical, theory and practice. And today's guest is no different from our previous ones. Dale S. Wright is Gamble Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies and Professor of Asian Studies at Occidental College in Los Angeles. Dale has written and taught courses in Buddhist studies, the philosophy of religion and contemporary religious thought. He's also the author of many books, articles and reviews. Some of his most well-known books include Philosophical Meditations on Zen Buddhism, The Six Perfections, Buddhism and the Cultivation of Character, and the latest book, which forms part of our discussion today, What is Buddhist Enlightenment? Dale was a great guest, and we had a very interesting, wide-ranging conversation that tackles a whole number of themes. As is the way of these things, we do focus in on his work, but at the same time, we take many a digression into reflection, thought, and conversation about current topics and about the current state of affairs in the world we all inhabit and share, with all of its complexity and juicy, challenging material. Today's music is provided by a group from Trieste. Yes, I have moved over to my current locale. It's not because Bristol doesn't have any more music to offer. It does. There's plenty more coming out of that wonderfully creative and divergent city. But considering I spend quite a lot of time meeting musicians in my adopted city here in Italy, I thought, well, why not give them a chance, especially as many of them sing in English. Today's group is uh, no different. They have an interesting name, it's called Ask Her Out. The track I've selected is from their album Uno, and it's called Safe Spot. No, not safe space, safe spot. What would that be? Hmm, well, I've heard the song, maybe you should do the same. As per usual, you can check out more of their music on SoundCloud. And Uno, by the way, is free to download, so why not? Enjoy the episode! Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast, Dale Wright. How are you today, Dale? I'm wonderful, thank you. Matthew, good morning. Not morning for you, hardly. That's right. It's evening for me and morning for you, but the good morning works just fine. So I've sent you a number of questions as I like to do with guests. And the first one 
Would you consider yourself a Buddhist, and why, why not? And if you are one, what kind are you specifically, if you don't mind me asking? I don't mind, although I have to say, um, students in my classes usually don't get up the nerve to ask that. Oh, really? It's the eighth or ninth week of the course, and you just leap in for his question. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> and my answer has changed over the years uh, from from who cares, what difference does it make, which I still hold on to that a bit, to no, because I'm so many other things. Why, why single out any of them, including being an American and, you know, a 21st century person and so on. But I'm more and more inclined to say yes these days, but it has to come with significant qualifications in my case, uh, in that I've taken no vows, I've undergone no initiations, I'm certainly not orthodox, so some Buddhists would be hard-pressed to consider me a Buddhist. Um, half of the influence in my life is philosophically, intellectually, from other sources besides Buddhism, or at least half. On the other hand, my inclination to say yes and to claim it is that I've been involved with Buddhism now for most of my life. I'm a long-term meditation practitioner. Um, specifically, um, I've been involved more with Zen Buddhism than with any other particular type of Buddhism. I was a student of Maizumi Roshi for a certain period of time when he was the Roshi of the Los Angeles Zen Center. I've been writing on Buddhist philosophy for a long time, but I'm more interested now, at this point in my life, in what Buddhism could be than in what it was. And it's something, it's the privilege of being on the edge of something, being an outsider. There's no pull of orthodoxy, freedom to experiment. And I feel like I'm involved in this experimental enterprise of figuring out what Buddhism could contribute to contemporary culture and to the issues that we currently have from environmental dangers all the way down through current political um, dangers. So that's a complicated answer, but um, we're all at certain points in life, complicated people. <laughs> yeah, it's a good answer and a very interesting one. It makes me think of two more questions that are not on our list. And the first one may or may not be possible to answer, but I was just thinking about what you were saying about Maizumi Roshi. And I'm just wondering if you were studying with him uh, at the point at which you were already an academic studying Buddhist materials. And if so, how did someone like Maizumi Roshi view someone like you? Okay who's studying as a scholar, you know, and has a particular intellectual engagement with something like, you know, Buddhist scholarship. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good. That's interesting. Yeah. In fact, um, I had just completed my PhD and just procured my first permanent job as a professor when I moved to Los Angeles and um, began engaging in meditation at the Los Angeles Zen Center, or Zen Center of Los Angeles. So I was already a scholar, but frankly, my entrance into academics was by way of spiritual interests. That is, um, I, I grew up a secular person, no, no family religious heritage that really stuck or was, was that meaningful. But as a 19, 20-year-old, I became aware of, of some lack in my life. I felt like something was missing, and I thought maybe that was religion. And so I wanted to be a religious person, and I wanted to figure out how that was possible while at the same time being a total critical thinker, uh, a contemporary person in every respect. So uh, a bit of an archaic 
turn in my life where I wanted to I wanted to be religious. And so so it wasn't that I was an academic who then was experimenting with Buddhism. I was somebody at least aspired to be a religious person um, who thought you could do that in part through academics. That is that learning would be one way into this world. So I chose religious studies rather than philosophy as my um, my academic field. I never shied away from holding those two together, that, uh, that academic interests and religious interests could somehow be combined. Then Maizumi was accustomed to being around academics. Um, he was interested and um, specifically was interested in those engaged in Dogen studies at the time. And there were just a few beginning to be um, scholars engaging in Dogen studies. But uh, he his interest was in his students' spiritual well-being. And that was the focus. And whether that brought academic trappings with it or not, he didn't really care. And so it wasn't a factor in our relationship other than that I could speak a little Japanese and, um, and you know, I had some knowledge of Buddhism broadly. In fact, you know, more than he did, uh, because as a Zen master, he had been immersed in the Zen tradition, really didn't know much about Indian Buddhism or Chinese or other traditions. There was a second part to your question, I think. Uh, the second part of my question, it's actually a second question, but it's in response to what you were speaking about previously. I like what you said about the fact that you're looking to see what, what Buddhism might offer or do now. And I was just wondering if you'd made progress in that kind of thinking, if there's some sort of working solution or, or, or conclusion that you've come to at some point recently. And if so, what would that be? Yes, I've come to many conclusions over the time of my engagement with Buddhism, which has been you know, well over 40 years. But some of these are um, listed at the end of the book that you're referring to here, the book, What is Buddhist Enlightenment?, where I give 10 theses, that is 10 positions that I want to take on contemporary Buddhism. And so some of them come out there. But Overall, my realization as time goes on and on and I study different traditions is that there's something brilliant about the Buddhist starting point that just sets itself up in contemporary culture in just the right way for me. And that is that you, you begin with premises like everything's changing, everything's impermanent, um, everything arises dependent on other factors. There are no fixed essences. There's no self. And so all of those problematic religious conceptions are off the table, and you're starting from open inquiry um, that is attuned to historical change, tuned to evolutionary change, not opposed to any of those recent developments in contemporary Western culture. And just as a beginning point uh, for thinking altogether, it's excellent. But as a beginning point for religious thought, it's unbelievably unique. So those premises are involved uh, as the basis for a spiritual quest. Um, I've appreciated more and more as the decades rolled by through my life. It, it makes me think that Buddhism could have a significant role. I've also been engaged in trying to rethink the Buddhist concept of karma to try to purify the the idea of um, supernatural elements that or would get in the way of it being appropriated today and think that in some sense where you, if you have a moral order that is 
not imposed by deity, that's just part of the way things are, um, and that works without outside intervention, you've got a really good starting point for some kind of moral, ethical, systematic thinking. So that's another element that I think really has potential in contemporary culture. Well, you know, Dale, listening to you again, uh, yet another question pops up, and uh, we will get back to the list of those I sent you at some point, but there's there's a slightly troubling term I heard you use that I, I feel I have to, to pick up on, and I don't necessarily think it's problematic in its pragmatic usage, but this word spiritual, I actually wrote a, a blog essay about it, I think it was a couple of years back, and I wrote a sort of... Uh, the topical title I gave it was slightly controversial for deliberate purposes, but it was against the spiritual. And uh, I came to the conclusion that I didn't really know what that word meant anymore. I'd assumed it meant many things, and I'd allowed it to do a lot of extra work for me over the years. And I realized that perhaps it wasn't the best word to be using anymore, um, both in terms of Buddhism, but also in the types of things at least I was getting up to in practical terms when meditating and so forth. But also in conversations, I, I often find that it, it seems to carry a lot of assumptions with it and I just wonder sometimes what are we talking about when we say spiritual or if you don't mind me being just slightly uh, difficult with you I might ask you well what do you mean by a spiritual quest? Okay I don't mind you being difficult at all those are all really excellent points and and the critique of the words uh, spirituality right now I think you know, there, there are good reasons for it and I haven't read yours but I'm interested my use of it is very broad, as you can imagine, has to do with the German word Geist, um, where the, even the humanities are the, the, the sciences of the spiritual, the Geisteswissenschaften. It also goes back to medieval Christianity, where the people engaged in the most serious practice it was called spiritual practice, whereas the, the, the religious were the people in, in the churches praying for better crops or a son in the next birth. Um, the monks and nuns were engaged in profound um, prayer and contemplative practice. It was called spiritual. So that distinction carried over into modernity, giving spirituality the sense of, okay, it's a practice. It's something that's intentional and you're engaged in a transformative kind of undertaking or endeavor. So I use it with those overtones. And I was sympathetic when students a decade ago or even longer began to say, I'm spiritual but not religious, meaning um, in their, you know, undereducated use of those words, I don't go to church or I'm not in the synagogue when I ought to be, etc. But I do consider myself someone on a quest, right? I read poetry. I listen to the, mu the music I listen to, and I listen in the way I do because it's deeply meaningful for me. In that sense, spiritual simply means existentially engaged, like this matters to me, all the way down into my deepest recesses. So the, the term spiritual is going to have to play its own way through this or not or be dropped. But when you're stuck with the choice between saying it's religious or spiritual, your options in contemporary culture are not very good, right? There's difficulty with both terms and both carry connotations that are going to be wide ranging. So what do you think of that? 
Well, I think it actually connects back to the the answer you gave about whether you're a Buddhist or not. Uh, these terms end up being, well, they, they end up demanding of, of us a certain amount of qualification. I just wonder to what degree that forces us to come up with new terms or not. And I was interested in your answer as, as somebody who's an academic and, and is, you know, traversing both terrains, right? That of the, the intellectual and that of the practitioner. And I guess an alternative word which doesn't roll off the tongue so well, is this one put back into usage by the German philosopher uh, Peter Sloterdijk, which is something along the lines of anthropotechnic, which is his kind of complex way of talking about human practices, which is probably not so far off from some of what you were just saying. Yes. Even though I critique the word spiritual, and I don't really use it anymore, there, there is a sort of gap there, and I haven't quite come up with a nice catchy one-liner to fill it with. So... Well, maybe we are stuck with spiritual and we just have to qualify it and, and have slightly longer qualifi- uh, conversations with people than we'd like sometimes. But but there it is. Uh, I have another another thing popped into mind as well when you were, were answering that second question I gave you about the applicability of certain um, Buddhist sort of primary principles. And I, I can certainly get on board with that. It made me think of a, a, a book by another chap who's rather famous and wouldn't consider himself religious or, or likely that spiritual either. And it's Owen Flanagan. I wonder if you're familiar with his book, The Bodhisattva's Brain, um, Buddhism Naturalized, and, and what you think of that kind of work and whether it, it resonates at all with the sort of thinking and writing you've been doing. Yes, um, it, it does. Um, not in all respects, and, and I, it's been a while since I've looked at that book, but um, his, uh, Flanagan's um, ability to bring neuroscience and um, contemporary psychology into its bearing on Buddhist practice, uh, very interesting, um, promising, uh, helpful in all kinds of ways. So, um, and, and I suspect you're right. I, I know Owen, and I, I doubt that he would want to identify with any, either religious or spiritual, nor Sloterdijk's version. But he's a philosopher, and a good one, and a thoughtful one. Being an analytic philosopher uh, puts you in a certain style of thinking, but his capacity to reach out beyond that and to um, encounter Buddhism, to encounter Chinese philosophy, uh, is impressive. Let's get back to this list of questions. I have a terrible habit of digressing, which I think is very bad for an interviewer. But, you know, it, it's also the fact that I'm just speaking to very interesting people who've got a lot to uh, to give. This would be a nice time to link back to the question I want to ask next, which is about this tricky term enlightenment. Before we get into the sort of nitty gritty of your book on the topic, I'm kind of curious, uh, what would drive you both professionally and personally to invest so much time and thought into putting together a book like What is Buddhist Enlightenment? You know, I realized at a certain point about 10 years ago that I've never really written about anything else, that when it comes right down to it, everything I've written and all of my thinking is about this central core element in Buddhism. So it's like I'm I'm, as though I'm incapable of thinking about anything else, that that's what had captured my interest in the first place. That is what my quest in my own life, whether it's Buddhist or not, is about. That was the point of my going on to higher education, to enlighten myself and to try to open up new vistas, be able to see things more comprehensively, be able to understand myself more accurately, 
So it's what brought me to this was, this book basically was, well, why not? I mean, it's audacious to write a book about enlightenment, obviously. Um, everybody's going to say, well, how does he know? And the answer is clearly, well, I don't, but this is my lifelong quest. This is what I'm about. From my point of view, that's what Buddhism is really about, um, makes the fit with between Buddhism and myself all the tighter. I felt that my role as an educator throughout my life was to teach students how to seek enlightenment throughout their lives. And where enlightenment means simply waking up to larger vision, seeing and understanding what's blinded you before, learning that there's always more, that you never have it, learning that you can always break through the barriers that are uh, constraining you. So as audacious and arrogant as the book might sound, um, I claim to be nothing but a seeker in this. There's also this tradition in Buddhism where anyone who claims to be enlightened or knows obviously isn't. So we can see from uh, the brazen bragging of our current president here in this country, anyone who claims to know with great perfection clearly doesn't. That's good, isn't it? But it, it sounds a bit too much like a Buddhist trope to me, if you don't mind me saying I don't know. I have mixed feelings about the whole topic of enlightenment, and I think it's good to to take these these um, these almost famous aphorisms about the topic itself as as sort of useful reminders to to consider the far bigger picture. Isn't that far bigger picture? What is it that is troubling to you about enlightenment? I think I remember William saying something about you, and you, one of your conclusions about enlightenment was that you were drawing on the work of Wittgenstein, and you said to some degree, you know, it's a different kind of language game. Well, if that's true, that lends me to another thought, which is the word enlightenment obviously isn't a word that, that translates particularly well the different terms that have been used by different Buddhist traditions or Hindu traditions for that matter as well. And therefore, my first thought is, well, are there better words, of course? Uh, and it's the same sort of topic that comes up when we discuss karma and dharma and a whole range of other words, including, as you well know, the word religion or Buddhism as an ism. And so my first thought I guess once I started thinking about this topic critically as well, is there a better English term that we could use? That would be the first thought. And then the second would be, well, if we end up having a conversation about enlightenments in the plural, just as we talk about Buddhisms in the plural, well, perhaps we're actually talking about a variety of different phenomena. And if we are, then perhaps there could be some comparative analysis of them. And at that point, we may actually be on our way to identifying something a little bit more let's say, tangible in terms of what we can define, uh, understand, and think about in terms of practices that exist already, but new practices that we might give rise to. One of the problems with making a statement like, you know, it's that beyond what we know is it, it does end up becoming a little bit of a chimera, which again is fine. <laughs> I like to be critical, but I'm also completely open to all of these things coexisting. But I wonder at the end of the day, if we're not playing a sort of fanciful possibly self-serving game by speaking about such matters in such ways. Let me clarify at the outset, I would never say, and certainly didn't say that enlightenment was beyond the knowable, okay. um, right? Is You're right, that's vacuous. Okay? If you don't have anything to say about it, don't talk about it. Um, but is there a better term? Okay, a good place to start. If we're interested in translating Asian traditions into English, definitely. Enlightenment is not the best term because there's no term in 
Sanskrit or Pali or uh, or other Asian Buddhist traditions. It would literally be our word enlightenment. And one thing I clarify in the book at, at the outset is that that term comes into play only in the middle of the 19th century. And Europeans have already been playing with Buddhism, trying to figure it out, not liking it very much before that. But in the 1850s, when Max Muller and other Buddhist scholars began to translate the goal of Buddhism, you use the word enlightenment in German rather than in English, but that turns the tables on Buddhism. And that suddenly makes Buddhism interesting. So it's this historic switch by selecting that word uh, that has stuck all the way up, you know, for the last um, century and a half and more um, that made Buddhism interesting. So once you've used that term, then people like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and um, all of the literati in Europe, all the way up to Emerson and Thoreau in this country, they can look at Buddhism and say, okay, there's something here. Well, why? Well, the, the, the word enlightenment was interesting because it didn't have necessarily religious connotations, right? It didn't come from Christianity. It came from the Age of Enlightenment. It came from Imam Kant, and where enlightenment meant maturity, growing up, being willing to use your own mind. And so those connotations that carried with it overtones of science, scientific honesty, critical thinking, political liberation, uh, away from monarchs, and all of those transformations in culture were part of the word enlightenment. So it really worked for Buddhism to make Buddhism interesting. And the difference between awakening, which is a, a good translation of the Sanskrit bodhi, and, and enlightenment, they're, you know, they're similar metaphors in some sense. Um, you wake up when light is shown on the matter uh, that you have now have insight into. The, the, the word enlightenment I use simply because it has been the word since the 1850s in Europe, all the way through contemporary Buddhism. And if we're um, asking broadly, well, what's Buddhism about from a Western point of view? Well, that's enlightenment. Okay, so it's a generic term, though. And my point in the book, obviously, is that it's very diverse. Buddha, the long history of Buddhism is a history of very different meanings and experiences of enlightenment. So when a Zen master is thought to have experienced Satori, that kind of breakthrough doesn't look like the breakthrough of a Thai master in the 14th century, and and, and on and on. So that uh, there are so many versions of enlightenment that is to the benefit of Buddhism, right? Your question is in part, well, should we stick with a generic term? Well, maybe. I mean, we do it in lots of things, right? Just take anything. So if there's anything generically in common between experiences of enlightenment or or insights that are thought of as enlightening, then I think the term is still useful. Can we then begin to get a typology of different types of insightful breakthroughs or enlightenments? Sure. Yeah. And, and I think that's really important. And more and more, I think we're going to be able to do that, um, be able to look at different experiences of enlightenment, the way they're described and the way they manifest themselves as lived reality, the way people live after enlightenment or as enlightened and say, well, wait a minute, these are very different. This one has these advantages over this other one, or this one lacks this dimension to its benefit or detriment and so on. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting the point you raised as well about the fact that Buddhism only became interesting when that word was given to it. And historically, that makes sense. But it's, it's also interesting that that word has stuck. And as you rightly said, is stuck and uh, remains with us up to this day. Um, I think one of my concerns, I guess, is that when you have a word which is a category noun in this case that doesn't refer to a thing that's more tangible, it ends up becoming a sort of, well, it takes on two roles. The first one is it becomes a placeholder for uh, the incredible imagination of those who might seek something that's almost impossible. And certainly, we, we, as you're most likely well aware, there's been a lot of a lot of claims in different Buddhist groups over the years by some of unscrupulous fellows as well, that, you know, being enlightened means having superpowers and so forth. That's one problem with it. I think the other one as well is it becomes a sort of personal title which anyone can claim. And perhaps we're slowly coming out of that phase now after various scandals have taken place here and there. But uh, that's, that's the, the challenge I find more interesting. If we do adopt another term, will it somehow empower or enable further the project that you spoke about, but also that someone like Owen Flanagan might speak about, which is to secularize more um, certain types of Buddhist practice that we've adopted in the West more fully, and that are perhaps used by those who are not religious, not particularly spiritual, but do see benefit in Buddhism in a way that's more... Um, holistic than perhaps just say an interest in mindfulness meditation. I think there are folks who would like to do more with it, explore the possibility of it as a form of applied philosophy and practice. And I think in those cases, it would be certainly useful to conceptualize that say goals along the way, again, that would need a slightly problematic ideal, but I think it might do just for our conversation for now, so that Buddhism can be seen as more than just a very simple mindful meditation practice that enables people just to live their lives and manage certain degrees of low-level suffering. I would agree with you that some of the premises of Buddhism are quite radical and they have far greater usage and power, I think, for wider populations that might be interested in some type of humanistic practice uh, that also contains some level of insight or breakthrough or profound change to some degree, but stays away from, you know, sort of transcendent principles. Well, you're you're really describing an interest in, in Buddhism that, that matches mine almost point to point. But the difference is simply this, that I want to think of that as what it means to be religious in a contemporary way. To discard the, the secular religious uh, dichotomy that is, you know, admittedly very convenient today, where um, religion can so often be problematic in, in many ways. But if you, we ask ourselves, what gave rise to religions in the first place? Many factors, but for me, the most important one is a, a sense of a growing need in early cultures for meaningfulness. The word religio means a kind of binding together of a culture around a set of meanings and the, a sense that life should mean something. Okay, So there um, we're in a dispute about, okay, is that philosophy or is that religion? Well, I think that's what gave rise to religion. Philosophy at some point can separate out from religion, while religion keeps, maintains its philosophical orientation. But the, the religious interest in the meaningfulness of things continues all the way up into contemporary circumstances. So um, in response to secular Buddhists who are interested in more than simply mindfulness practice, they want to be better at concentrating or something like that, but who have a deep existential engagement um, with 
some kind of quest for meaningfulness as human beings on this planet, that from my point of view, that's what religion is. And if by secular we mean not religious, then I think we've we've drawn a line that we really shouldn't we, we shouldn't be drawing. So if by religious we mean human drive for existential meaning that gave rise to those traditions, as perverse as we may now think of some of them, uh, if that's what motivates religion, then we still have that, but we have it in our own way. Um, we, we don't have it in a medieval way, um, even though some religions as institutions carry those medieval meanings up into the present time, and plenty of people participate in them. So I guess rather than being the scholar who wants to separate myself off from religious people, I want to claim solidarity with people, with everyone, and and say that we're all in need of that deep sense of connection and meaningfulness. And that my quest for that is really fundamentally no different than theirs, even though the way they go about it, their means, their their practices are going to be fundamentally different from mine. And mine are going to engage a lot of critical thinking, and it's going to be an intellectual quest as well as an emotional quest, uh, a quest to encompass emotions and bring them into my life in a way that's less problematic and that is open to other people. So my um, maybe problematic effort to revive our sense that we too, we contemporary people, critical thinking people, can be religious uh, without needing to necessarily join anything, without having to engage in supernatural beliefs, without having to take on magical conceptions, but that we too are engaged in that most fundamental quest for significance in life. I, I prefer that approach. But, you know, I read everything the secular Buddhists have to say. It's interesting. I'm with them on these practices are interesting. Um, this, this kind of engagement is great. And so on. There's a lot of uh, interesting material in that answer. Yeah, I have a number of thoughts in response. The first one is that I, I think it's, it's a perfectly understandable and quite idealistic view of the world that you've expressed. And it brings up more questions for me, which is, well, there are a number of them, but one of them is, is it possible for us, at least in the English language world, to be able to requalify to some degree this word religion? I think it carries so much baggage that it's difficult for us to to take that spin that you've given to it, which I, I, I understand and I can appreciate too. And I think that it's part of an echo of a, a far wider concern that's being expressed by many folks across the world who have taken on, let's say, the secular approach or been embedded in secular culture significantly and have come out the other side saying, well, is this it? Is this enough? Um, it could be argued as well that in secular forms of of religious practice, and you mentioned secular Buddhism, I think there is sometimes a form of poverty uh, to such approaches and that they tend to give themselves a very strict code based on, a, well, obviously a secular reading of the world, which limits, I think, the degree of creativity that's possible in reimagining possibilities of new kinds of practices. It seems to be, well, a secular approach is we take out the mystical voodoo stuff and we take what's left and we take an irrational interpretation of that. Again, that's a fine project, but I wonder to what degree it satisfies. Um, again, I would, I would almost like to say that I think we need a new word. I, I don't think religion can survive as a usable term because so much of the world 
which is globalized now, is so fully religious and, you know, in early modern, pre-modern forms that to to try to use that word again to describe the spiritual but non-religious group or the, the post-secular is almost not possible because it's still so fully tied to people who are, in a sense, embedded in practices that are pre-rational, um, pre-modern, and oftentimes incompatible with certain forms of secular society, whether it's democracy, equal rights for women, homosexuals, the rule of democratic you know, institutions and laws over religious institutions. At the individual level, I think it's, it's, it makes sense to view the world in the way you've described, and that's quite noble, I think. Um, but at the social and cultural and political level, I think it's near impossible. Perhaps, again, I'm just speaking, thinking out loud now with this final point, it could only be possible if we had a sufficiently educated populace that could appreciate the historical roots of words like enlightenment, religion, Buddhism, Christianity, and so forth, and the relationship between the terminology we use to talk about spirituality and religion, the historical context in which those words emerge, and their relationship with thought that brings us up to secular society, the modern age, and shifts in the academic thinking, whether it's post-secular you know, post-religious or metamodern and some of these others. That's that's probably the the challenge I would give back to you uh, in response to what you said. Okay. No, excellent. Um, and I concede that you may very well be right. Uh, the history of language is, is always quite mysterious. You don't know which words will just disappear and you can't use them anymore and which ones will revive and come back. And in fact, there are times when a word can disappear for a period of time and then boom, there it is again. So you could certainly be right about the irrevivability of both religion and spirituality in contemporary circumstances. But I wouldn't bet on it. And, uh, and I want to refer back to a point you made that there is a sense in which, and, and I agree with you on this, that it would only be possible to upgrade um, and update the kind of religious um, beings we are with um, a kind of global education. I mean, not that it has to be the same education, but with the full engagement of the principle of critical thinking, with the full ability to give science its due, um, along with gender equality and everything else you named, and enlightenment as, a, as a, a transformation within finitude and so on, recognizing all of those. But um, as you said, I'm an idealist, and am I giving up on the possibility of a globally educated humanity? No, um, certainly not. Um, and I think that it's, in some sense, a principal element in the hope we have to survive. And I think the tribalism that runs deep in religions right now, as well as among other people, including secularists, um, is profoundly dangerous. Not that it's a new thing. It's as old as tribes. But our capacity to, over time, obviously that won't happen immediately, to break through those barriers and to extend education to everyone, and in a, the most pluralistic and broad sense of the word education. Um, that's our way through this. And I completely understand that um, that's idealistic, but I'm all about ideals and think that um, if you give them up, if you think that's a bad thing to be, um, then the game is lost. And furthermore, I hear them profoundly in your discourse as well. So, 
<laughs> yeah, I've been actually thinking about this, what you just said of late, because something interesting does happen if you give up all ideals. I think it does tend to produce a pessimistic subject. And I think even if you end up becoming a more of a realist, a self-claimed realist, in the background, there's, even, there's going to be an undercurrent of pessimism or optimism. And, you know, I think of an idealist, I tend to think of, you know, and it's more common usage of, of somebody who tends to think positively about universal possibilities, you've, as you've mentioned. But I think pessimists can also be certain forms of idealists too. Um, one of the reasons I tend to be critical of the idealistic position is that idealism, although serving incredible motivational possibilities, if it's held unquestioningly, can actually be a form of refuge from reality or a more critical take on beliefs and uh, assumptions. And I'm not implying this is your case, Dale, at all. I'm just talking about practitioners. And because I, I seem to be uh, infiltrated by this compulsion always to, be, to play the devil's advocate, my, you know, my question comes up when people speak to me about idealistic views is, you know, what's behind that? What, what part of you needs that to be the case? And what would happen to you if you were to give that up for a moment? At the same time, I, I agree with you that societies, groups and individuals do need some form of ideals. They need, in another term we might use, we need dreams, right? We need a dream about what's possible and what could be. Otherwise, we certainly will fail to actualize it to, to any meaningful degree. I guess my, my second point about idealism in, in, in the sense that I've just described it would be that one of the consequences of this globalized world where we're hyper-connected and, you know, very distracted is that it's leading to this forms of fragmentation, which, are, which is making collective forms of um, sufficiently robust collective forms of projection towards shared futures more and more difficult. And you mentioned tribalism. And we've spoken about this on the podcast a little bit before, you know, many of my fellow left-wing wingers seem to have swung to quite a far position in terms of idealistic refuge in which um, many of them refuse to engage with the middle ground. That's both interesting politically and ideologically, but one of the consequences is that what we're seeing in Europe, for example, is a lot of the left, which tends to be quite idealistic, is losing the general populace because the ideals it holds on to have become unworkable. And therefore, what we're seeing is many of the, those in the middle ground shifting towards the right, which is very unfortunate. And how does that relate to our discussion today? Well, it makes me think that a huge challenge for those who are idealistic is, is how to navigate immense fragmentation. That ties into the point I made before, which is that we live in an age perhaps where the words we choose and the key terminology we choose has become more important than ever before. And therefore, in a sense, to break through sometimes these sort of tribal divisions or these stalemates, a new kind of language might be necessary ties us back in finally to Sloterdijk, who I mentioned before, who's somebody, you know, who's, who's aware of these themes and invented his terms for that purpose. And yet here we are. Excellent. By the way, Sloterdijk is somebody I read carefully, you know, important to me. Um, okay, responding to all of this, um, I want to disclaim uh, idealism as a kind of um, dreamy, unrealistic orientation of the world. That's not me at all. I am a realist. But realistically, not to have ideals, which you call dreams, which I, I, I'd select something slightly less dreamy, goals, targets, things that could be accomplished, that ought to be accomplished, 
So I like the word ideals. And so my earlier book on the six perfections, Buddhism and the Cultivation Character, is about cultivation of ideals in life without becoming so dreamy and drifty that you're disconnected from the reality that we really do face. So what worries me about the contemporary world is not that people are pessimists. I can be as pessimistic as anybody, but that pessimism can turn to cynicism. And that's what I'm seeing in contemporary culture in people who are either in, on the left, as I too am, and who become cynical about ordinary people and the possibility of there being any world that encompasses them. Or going the other direction, those who say, well, screw this. Um, life is about accumulating what you can. I can't seem to do anything towards the ideals I hold. I'm going to make some money, right? I'm going to live comfortably. Um, so uh, so an, an end to um, a concern for collectivity, um, unconcerned about the, the dangers of the kind of fragmentation that we currently experience, and, and just fragmenting things further. The, the point here for me is that holding ideals, um, and to be idealistic in that minimal sense, is just to say, from my point of view, here's where we ought to be headed. These are things we really should be doing. Now, those change, right? You move culturally and historically to a new position, and those are going to be trashed or modified, and you're off to a new set. But that you're always, you have something in sight, and that you're attempting persuasion towards others, and you're in conversation, and you're open to be persuaded, um, where the, you are engaged with others in an effort to sit ideals out ahead of ourselves and say, okay, here's where we need to be moving. We're in danger, dangerous territory where we are currently. And um, that's our direction for now. Yeah. I'll clarify one thing too, then when I'm thinking about the dream or the possibility of dreaming, I'm thinking more along the lines of, you know, the Martin Luther King, I have a dream, that kind of idea, okay. which is certainly going to be closer right. to what you've just described. All I was doing is pointing out the, the risk of that. No, no, you're right. Too. That's you're great. Thank you. Whenever we, whenever I have a conversation with guests on these topics, you know, it ends up opening up a whole set of new doors about certain types of thought that really are, are out there and need to be explored more fully. To go back to one of the, the topics we were discussing before in this notion of religion, I think you're absolutely right about the need to think beyond the, the dichotomy between the secular and the religious. I, I do agree with you there. Um, this was a topic I was discussing with uh, William, which is this notion of renewal and ritual renewal as being a dominant cultural artifact that you find across cultures and across different historical phases you know cultures renew themselves because it's necessary you know it allows us to discard the weight of that which we've accumulated and one of the features we might say about modern society is it's failed to develop meaningful social practices that allow for collective renewal to take place and yeah. this is um, a fantasy. There we go. I'm quite happy to use that word that I have, which is the, and I'm not the first one to say it. And we've heard, we've heard it expressed in a variety of different ways by different folks uh, from different backgrounds and in different social and, and political and historical contexts, which is, I, I think, the religion of the future has to be some sort of, you know, relationship between viewing the earth as sacred 
and finding a sacred relationship between human species and the planet. Um, you know, there was this notion of Gaia that's been around by James Lovelock, and he was a rationalist and a scientist and so forth, which could be workable. Um, but again, I think that we probably have two choices ahead of us as a species. We either take on the word religion and use it more explicitly to describe a whole new variety of, of practices, which would actually uh, be a signal that say to the wider cultures that we're living in that religion isn't just the thing from, you know, um, Israel or, or the, the Far East or some other exotic location, but actually religion is a workable term that we could build a new set of practices from. That's one possibility. The other one is that it will connect to a sort of techno-religion where people will worship some form of, of hyper-transcendence based on sort of digital assimilation. And quite a few people have been speaking about that. And I think even the Buddhist geeks have had a couple of conversations along that line. I find that line quite deeply worrying because I think that one of the, the profound mistakes we're making as a species is that we're actually seeking a form of, of feeling and meaning refuge in the digital world and that actually those of us who have some degree of financial, economic and health privilege need to actually reinvest in our material reality, which again is one of the reasons I'm quite cautious about using words like spiritual. Um, those are all excellent points. And the, the need for renewal, regeneration in everything, you know, not, not just in religious communities, but in science and in political organization is crucial. But what I see as our danger, those of us who are intellectuals and everybody listening to this, uh, everybody involved in what you're doing and what I'm doing too, our danger is that uh, intellectuals shun involvement in communities of ordinary people, which tend to be religious communities, and separate ourselves out. And that, that gap makes it more and more difficult for us to break through into a new future where the earth is sacred. So the fact that you know you and I are probably not there in religious communities arguing for the, that case, arguing that this community should consider the earth sacred and should set up new rituals that, that clarify that, new practices that conform to it. I think that's important because in my judgment, if we're, if we're gonna beat climate change and the dangers to the whole planet and to the entire um, kingdom of biology, it will be religious communities joining in who will make that possible in terms of millions, tens of millions of people. Our re-engagement with them as intellectual leaders among them, rather than aside from them and against them, that is important to me. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point you raise, and I think it brings up a lot of challenges. And one of them is to the degree to which we as practitioners of something like Buddhism in a, in a more secular style approach, or a post-traditional approach, I might say, or if I'm going to bring in you know, some of my um, sort of colleagues into the discussion in terms of uh, non-Buddhism, it does bring up a question of what it means to commit to a community of others and the degree to which we're willing to commit and invest time and energy into those types of spaces. That seems to bring us towards a, a reflection on the role of community in something like religious or spiritual practice. And certainly in my experience, the majority of people I've met both in Buddhist circles, but also in the shamanic and neo-shamanic world, and then in the New Age world, which I inhabited quite a lot as a child, is that the majority of people really are coming to those kinds of spaces for community needs. And some of these discussions really that you and I are having on the on the level of, let's say, intellectuals, um, 
they're, they're not necessarily appropriate for those kinds of contexts. And yet I also, and maybe you and I would share this, I'm not sure, but I get the impression we might. I tend to believe that much of these conversations that I have on the podcast are actually applicable to the man in the street or, you know, the, the, the woman and the, the child attending Sunday service or a meditation class. And I think the challenge often lies with us uh, those of us who, who think deeply or, or engage in conversation on these topics, I think we do have a sort of duty to the communities that we're part of to actually transmit or translate some of these kinds of thoughts and conversations into a vernacular which is understandable by people who, who don't have the time or the inclination to engage in more intellectual thought. Um, that's certainly an ideal uh, I will use that word again in this case that I have, and I think it's possible and it's something I've certainly tried to argue for in the podcast. Um, and you're right, um, maybe we do need, so to say, an army of intellectuals willing to, you know, <laughs> humble themselves and think about the language and the concepts they, the concepts they use and actually consider um, being of service to some degree to the communities that they're part of. And, and maybe that makes me think about the fact that intellectuals like yourself who do have uh, a personal practice which has been defined as spiritual and Buddhist, that's where compassion comes in, right? That's where something like love comes in. That's where something like um, noble desire comes in and how it might be expressed. But it brings up a challenge to me what you've just said because I'm actually not currently engaged in any Buddhist community locally. I am engaged in some neo-shamanic groups and I do attempt to have conversations with uh, practitioners in those environments. And, and I, I take it as a practice in itself that the, the onus is on me to not talk down to people or talk at people, but to find a way to transmit some of this, this, this conversational material or the works of different Western philosophers, contemporary and past, into you know, conversational forms that are actually accessible to anybody. But, you know, I'm a teacher and I, I guess I take that as a sort of pedagogical uh, duty, much in the way doctors make their, their vow to, to treat others. Um, I don't know if you, you feel similar to that or not. And yeah. I do I agree. And, and I'm encouraged to hear that, in fact, Matthew, you're more religious than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Deep degree of religious engagement. Um, I'm not involved in a, in a Buddhist community currently, and but I'm, I get invited to um, come speak to them on various occasions. And so, so it's not non-involvement either. For many of us, and, um, and you as well, our writing, and in your case, podcasts as well, um, becomes our involvement. That becomes our form of engagement. And we're reaching out to people in those ways as well. To bring our conversation back to um, the topic of enlightenment, and which was really just an excuse to have a conversation with you, really, Del. <laughs> but I do want to give some justice to your work and talk about it further. A bridge that we might take back to that core topic would be just a, a further perhaps point on the secular. You've made various points throughout and you've just told me that you sometimes give talks and presentations to Buddhist groups. Do they involve to some degree an expression or a discussion of the role of the secular in understanding in a more contemporary fashion different aspects of Buddhism? Uh, yes, although I would never use the word secular there. For me, uh, just contemporary, right? Contemporary, um, 
for me means, okay, you're on the edge. You, you, you acknowledge science. If you don't acknowledge science, you're not a contemporary person. Engagement in critical thinking and on and on. You know, elements, you know, gender equality, you know, we can name many of them. These are just features of what it means to be a contemporary person. You're you're not living in the past, right? You're not living a reactionary kind of life. And so secular, which for me just means not religious, meaning not really engaged on a quest for the meaning or collective compassion and so on. Those meanings are off-putting to some people, and it, it throws it into question for me. So I prefer, I, I would much prefer if secular Buddhists would just say, we're contemporary Buddhists, right? We're not traditional Buddhists. We don't do this in the way they do it in um, in medieval Thailand and, and or, or any place else. Um, we're, we're just doing it in the way that comes to us. So that's my preference there. But otherwise, on, on, on the content, I'm totally with you on that. Well, good. Let's talk about enlightenment a little bit further. So your good. book, What is Buddhist Enlightenment, received quite a bit of attention. In fact, uh, I listened to a podcast you did with, uh, I think it's the New Books or New Buddhist Books podcast. And it was interesting to to listen to some of what you had to say about the different characteristics and different ways of thinking about enlightenment. I'd just like to ask you this question, which is what tensions do you see lying between the various different Buddhist notions of enlightenment and Western philosophical thought? Okay. Um, there's been a great deal of tension, or, or even worse, uh, no tension at all, insofar as Philosophy has been analytic. You know, the Anglo-American analytic tradition has, up until now, shown no interest at all in Buddhist philosophy. And even to the claim or disclaimer that Buddhist philosophy isn't really philosophy. Asian thinking is something else. It's not really philosophy. So that, from my point of view, arrogance cut off dialogue between those traditions until a recent term. Um, this has just been in the last really decade, maybe 15 years, where a few analytic philosophers like Owen Flanagan are turning their attention to Asian traditions and not just in disdain, but instead saying, okay, interesting, maybe there's something for us to learn here. And I think until more philosophers in the West are capable of doing that, not very likely that many Buddhist or Asian philosophers will be able to take an interest in the complexities of Western philosophy. So what dialogue there has been up until now has been in the continental tradition of philosophy, German and French, Italian. But as I said, all of that's changing. And and frankly, modern Buddhist philosophy has been largely moribund or inactive. When we talk about Buddhist philosophy, we're really talking about pre-modern tradition, with a few rare exceptions. Now, there are new developments that are really people who are Western philosophers, trained you know, with a PhD in philosophy in a regular philosophy department in the West, and they're Buddhists the belonging, participating Buddhists. And those are the people who are very likely to engage us in very productive exchange and breakthrough, and also offer Buddhism a chance for philosophical revival, which it needs pretty badly, because in many Buddhist circles over the last really many centuries, there's been somewhat of an anti-intellectual development that you know, is not without its point, but in the long run is harmful. 
Another, another area of confluence that's come together is recognition that there's something in the phenomenological tradition in continental philosophy in Europe that connects with Buddhist meditation, that what really uh, at least some meditators are doing in cataloging interior mental states as they engage in meditation is quite a lot what phenomenologists said we really need to do because of a shortcoming in Western philosophy, which is so outwardly engaged. Nietzsche says, we're unknown to ourselves. Uh, that is, we don't introspect so much as we analyze arguments out there in the world. And rather than look at our own interior mental mechanisms, again, that change is happening. It's happening in cognitive science. Um, it's happening in analytic philosophy. And it sets the stage for um, an exchange between Buddhist thought and Western thought that really hasn't yet happened. And I'm excited about the possibilities for it. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I like that as a point. I think that's one we've not heard before on the podcast. And once you said it, it made perfect sense that Buddhist philosophy does need, well, to use that word I gave before, a form of renewal uh, or of rebirth, if we want to use a Buddhist term. And yeah, yeah it'd be interesting. I, I, I know that... Um, Oh, who am I trying to think of? Yeah, was it Jay Garfield that wrote a piece last year, perhaps on um, the need to acknowledge Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy departments? That's right. It's a breakthrough kind of effort. He's somebody who's steeped in Buddhist philosophy, but with full training in uh, Western traditions. One point that I might add that uh, one area in which Buddhist philosophers will, when they get to it, have a lot to learn from Western thought um, is on the issue of, of justice. O Owen Flanagan makes this point um, that he sees, okay, we read through Buddhist texts, we don't see much on that concern. Um, and it's an ancient Greek concern, carries all the way through the Middle Ages in Western thought. And we have a major dose of it in contemporary Western thought. And until Buddhists get sophisticated on that um, and develop their own philosophical response to Western concerns about justice, um, there will be shortcomings in Buddhist thought. And Buddhists won't be able to engage their governments in a way that they're going to need to be able to. You know, one of the, the ironies of, uh, of democratic breakthrough in Asia is that suddenly the, the, the old unspoken agreement that Buddhists will just shut up about politics and they'll get to be Buddhist and talk about all the other things they want to talk about is that now that they live in, to some extent, democratic societies and free speech is to some extent open, they don't really know what they have to say about politics. They've never really engaged that sphere because essentially it was prohibited throughout the history of Buddhism um, as, as the, the grounds for their continued existence. So I think that Buddhists are going to need to read Rawls and Habermas and wherever else we have contemporary, very sophisticated reflection on issues of democratic engagement and justice. And um, they're going to have to catch up on that one. So um, that, I think, will be, is already being recognized among Buddhists who are finding themselves in difficult political circumstances, I mean, not just Tibetans, but elsewhere. Um, politics can't be very far from anybody's mind. They'll need to get sophisticated on that topic. And also, 
to figure out how it dovetails with whatever else they have to say philosophically. Uh, and I think when they're able to do that, however many decades or hopefully not centuries down the road, that is, they will also make contributions from which we'll be learning as well. Although that said, if uh, if I have to throw a sort of a negative add-on to what you've just discussed, I mean, we do see some engagement with politics in countries like Myanmar, where, you know, Buddhists have en masse supported the persecution of Muslims and uh, minority cultures. So I don't know if that uh, that fits with what you've just said. It does. That's a sign of a lack of delving into these contemporary issues. And the same um, Buddhists and Hindus in Sri Lanka, you know, we have uh, as instances of Buddhist injustice. I mean, it's a little unfair calling it Buddhist, but these people are Buddhists, even if just nominally, they haven't um, been able to come up with compassionate responses that would at least get to the point of minimal justice. So it's, it's, a, it's a failure, it's a Buddhist failure. The way I would think of it is there's not the infrastructure of thought to actually think about and around these kinds of topics. It's a slightly facetious comment I made, of course, in Myanmar. The the story, like all political stories, is far more complex than it being a bunch of Buddhists, you know, just persecuting Muslims. But, uh, but of course, but that is really happening. Yeah. And it is a problem for Buddhism in the world right now. I mean, the, the cachet of Buddhism, which you know, ran high for quite a while, People are beginning to say, well, wait a minute. You know, these people are not recognizing that their own principle of compassion and understanding and mutuality and interdependence means that these Muslims have a place in their society and that that failure is bad press for Buddhists right now. We can take a nice segue here to talking about some of the myths of uh, enlightenment. Talking about injustice and problematic behavior and a lack of, let's say, social and political awareness. Many of the, the teachers in the West that have abused their power by taking advantage of followers. We've heard about three stories of late, one of them being Sogyal. If we're going to talk about a figure like Sogyal, they're supposedly enlightened, these people, yet they're abusing others, causing pain and suffering. Some of us who are more sophisticated might say, well, people have misunderstood the teaching. But I think actually for most folks, if they're told to see their teacher as enlightened and perfect and infallible, I think that's what most folks tend to do. I think at least for a lot of Western Buddhist practitioners, it should be destabilizing quite deeply the ideals that many practitioners have of what something like Buddhist enlightenment might be. Perhaps you can respond to that, but also lead us towards other myths that, that you've come across in your writing that regard this whole notion of enlightenment. Good. Okay. Right. Um, one of the misconceptions uh, about enlightenment that has to go immediately is the, the image of perfection. Right or infallibility or omniscience, that magical conception of enlightenment um, is the most dangerous one. It's not just Western Buddhists who have that dreamy image. Um, it, it gets inculcated in certain Asian um, societies as well. And Buddhist leaders aren't always as quick to undermine that idea as they ought to be. That, that That's one that really needs to go because it you can't, um, if you hold that, that ideal in that naive way, then your, your trust is total and complete and no one ought to trust um, anyone to that extent. 
of regarding them as infallible and incapable of wrongdoing. So um, one, one of the chapters in the book on alignment is really taking my own Zen tradition to task for failure to recognize that and and regarding enlightenment so an enlightened zen master will necessarily um, practice um, purified morality but when i look at the zen tradition i see there's no training in the or very little in the moral dimension of human awareness so the, their practices are focused elsewhere and their practices are admirable in all kinds of ways but they don't target moral sensibility if that's the case then you can hardly expect the outcome to be deeply moral. If Zen Buddhism isn't about that primarily, then don't expect to find that in a Zen master. And, and we've seen over and over that's the case. What, I, what I'm arguing there is that the primarily Western astonishment that Zen masters were involved in recruiting in Japan <clears throat> young men, young Zen Buddhists and others to go to war for imperialistic purposes the regard for them as somehow infallible and incapable of making moral errors led people to just take that on face value. When in fact, the Zen masters, the Zen leaders who did that, um, weren't really trained to think critically about those kind of issues. And if they're not, if they haven't engaged in a practice that's oriented to that particular dimension of human character, don't expect it to be there. Um, to use the Buddhist pratitya samuppada, the idea of dependent origination, dependent arising, everything comes to be exactly what it is, depending on what gave rise to it. So enlightenment will take the shape of the practices that are in its background. That whatever you did to um, enlighten yourself, and whatever you did altogether in your life, your enlightenment will have been shaped by that. And if a dimension such as morality is missing, then morality will be missing in your enlightenment. That doesn't necessarily destabilize the ideal of enlightenment as force its reconceptualization. For anybody who held it pre-critically or naively, you have to think twice. You better think that one out again. So that Critical thinking must be part of Buddhist practice or anybody's practice as a contemporary human being. So let me, um, again, as a professor of religious studies, resist your um, use of the word myth as misconception. And I'm um, sure you'll see what grounds this is on. Where the, the, the word mythology, of course, in common sense, modernist uses means um, mistaken understanding, right? But um, what myths were in every society, and to my mind still are, were narratives, that is, stories, accounts that a group of people communicated and developed among themselves in order to understand who they are, what they're doing, what's real, what's important. So the mythos of a culture was its basic account, its intellectual account of reality. And different cultures had different myths. Every culture regarded the myths of others as false, of course, because they were different stories. And old myths looked particularly um, poor as time goes on, so that we've come, become used to using the word myth as meaning the the ways of narrative understanding of other people, but not including our own ways of, of understanding who we are and what's real in our world. So in the same sense that they had an account of that, we do too. And um, for me, I, I um, 
I'm puzzled that um, we continue to use the word the word myth with that those set of negative connotations when, um, in fact, we've structurally we do exactly the same thing everybody else has done, and it's our mode of narrativizing our identity as well. So let me let that go. You can respond to that later, but. So we really have two senses of the word myth. One, there is mythology, and mythology is interesting if you're a Jungian or if you're a psychologist and or if you're a historian. And then there's myth was uh, as just basically naive, pre-critical misconception of the way things really are. Yeah, I mean, that, that second meaning, I think, at least for me, was implicit that, that myth is, is both story and can be false or wrong. So if I was to view my fellow humans, both living and past, with warmth, I would say, yeah, you know, we, we've always needed stories. And this goes back to what we were discussing before when you were talking about ideals. You know, an ideal as, as something that we tell is itself a story as well. And we absolutely do need them. And, and maybe that's part of what's happening with the post. The post-secular, the secular is a story. But one of the characteristics that I guess we haven't quite settled on with enough clarity, collectively speaking, is that we do need to determine whether some stories are workable or not. And at that point, we, we are required to use critical language. And okay, we don't need to say myth necessarily, but we can say that if a collective of people tell, the, tell a story which paints their teacher as infallible in the modern age, and then that male teacher is supposed to be celibate or be you know sexually disciplined and is surrounded by adoring, very attractive young women, then perhaps that story is not the best story to be told. And I think that, again, this ties into the point about the uh, reviving of the term religion, that somehow we need to to find a way to educate ourselves sufficiently as a, as a global collective on many of these points in a way that will allow us to have a respect for the past, have a respect for the present, and give creative imaginative possibility for birthing something new for the future. And I know that the meta-modern is, is one approach which is seeking to navigate that dichotomy. I think one thing that Buddhism might have to offer here is, is that it has a certain technology that, if harnessed well, can enable people to disidentify from the stories they've been embedded in. And I think that's the point. I think that all stories to some degree have held lightly can actually serve a purpose which is greater than um, the individual or the religious urge to recreate itself and solidify itself in time and space. But you would need a sufficiently enlightened collective to be able to engage in that kind of practice. So you've written this book about enlightenment and You've come up with these, if I remember correctly, 10 answers to the question, what is enlightenment? I just kind of assume that within that process, you would be addressing some of these myths or let's say some of these, well, how else would you call them? Would you call them mis mistaken views or dysfunctional relationships with ideals? Because, I mean, you, you've just rightly, and I'm really glad you said it, you identified three of the characteristics which I find most problematic one I mentioned, then you added two more, you know, the infallibility. And what were the other two you mentioned before? Uh, I'm not sure. Perfection, infallibility, omniscience. Omniscience, that was the other one. Okay, but there's something in what you said that makes me think that you are still thinking that there are stories and then there are non-stories, that you can disidentify with all stories 
But my sense of that word, of this way of thinking is that, no, you're always embedded in stories. Even if your story is that we must engage in empirical research or that the moral dimension of um, sexual engagement is important, those are all the stories that are contemporary for us. Those are live. Those are as real for us as any early Islamic myth or, or, or even earlier, early mythos, so that we're not disidentifying with those stories. Um, we're completely identified with them so that what we need is the recognition that although our stories are riveting for us and they're true for us and they will engage us until they don't, that at some point in the future, there's good chance that our myths, that is our narratives, will turn out from some future point of view to be wrong in the same sense that we now look about at earlier mythos uh, traditions as you know, not usable, wrong in certain ways, um, wrong at least as claims about how the world really is, um, but ours will be too. So my, my point is that we're always re-identifying um, with the narratives that are at work in our culture as circulating memes, but never aloof from them, and always on the basis of new re-identifications, able to critique earlier ones and see what was wrong with the past. So I'm not a relativist um, in the sense that all myths are equally good. They're certainly not. But uh, <clears throat> but I am relativist in the sense of needing to stick out good for whom and when. So for us right now, um, we've got some stories that are working pretty well, and you and I have both named a number of them. And we're not about to disidentify with any of them. Yeah, I guess that makes sense to me, and, uh, and I'd agree with you on all of that. I think the only the only final point I'd add to that is that we do live in societies, both you and I, in which it is very much possible for us to, to try out different types of stories, change stories and explore, well, almost an infinite number of them in a way that I think is, is characteristic of, at least politically and economically, a secular society. Again, that's one of those lines of tension which is difficult to resolve in these kinds of discussions if we're doing sort of comparative works between different types of cultures and countries and so forth. It's interesting. I mean, again, this is one of those discussions that has often been encased in quite simplistic dichotomies. And you mentioned one before, you know, are you a relativist or not? To me, that just seems, it seems to be a, a digression from what is actually a far more interesting question, which is one you've raised implicitly in your, your, your point before, which is, what is the human condition if we are always embedded in stories? You know, who's doing it as well, right? There's a Buddhist question. Who is it that disidentifies from stories? And, you know, what, what does it mean for us to, to do that? And what kind of practices allow us to, what happens, you know, what is it that's disidentifying from that story? Is it just cultural trends running through us? You know, where, where's the role of agency? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm coming up with another set of digressions. You but... are, and those are all really worth taking up. One dimension, um, and you called the secular, and, you know, okay, but uh, for me, it, it's simply contemporary that, you and I, um, you more than I, have been educated in a world that is global, right? Your education, I assume, 
uh, even more than mine, was in not just the classics coming from Greece and from the, uh, medieval Europe, but from all over the world. And so that element of distance that we have from every identification, right? We know that these traditions are set aside uh, of each other, that they all have things that are really interesting about them. And therefore, unlike any previous generation, and you, again, more than me, um, will be able to hold our identities in some degree of irony, right? Some little bit of distance, yes, we, we think our politics are really on the spot, on the money, but we're aware of the fact that we could be wrong and this could be embarrassing. And, and for everything else as well, that nudging things open that the contemporary world really yields is, I think, uh, a, a huge benefit for what I'm going to call contemporary spirituality, contemporary religion. That's what will be able to make us um, be religious in any meaningful sense. If we can't do that, uh, if we're tradition-bound, um, it will just grind to an end. So one point to that, I want to ask, I want to add that there's something brilliant in Buddhism about that very point, that, that as you know, the teaching of shunyata, of emptiness, a contingency at the heart of everything, the relativity of everything to what gave rise to it, and the impermanence of everything, to have that be right at the heart of a religious tradition means that you, if you're following it faithfully at all and honestly, you've got to keep your mind open, and you have to be aware that concepts, symbols, religious practices are impermanent and they can wear out, they can run out of steam, they can become useless and that new ones will, may need to take their place. There's a, that edge is built into Buddhism. Do all Buddhists pay attention to that? No, not at all. Could they? Yeah. And um, that's, that's one of the elements of Buddhism that makes me think that it's retrievable as a contemporary um, way of thinking and practice. That all sounds great. If I were to take some of what you, you've said so far in our conversation, especially the, the last couple of answers you, you gave in response to my, uh, my slightly rambling points, um, one potential implication of what you've said is that the different types of Buddhist enlightenment are socially constructed. So I'm going to just leave that there, and then I'm going to ask you the question, which is, we've talked about stories. What story are you telling about enlightenment more specifically in your book? Okay. Yeah. Good. So um, socially constructed, um, I'm good with that. Culturally constructed, historically, you know, all of those modes of construction are going on. The history is churning us out and we are thinking in modes that are contemporary for us to think. And um, we are being creative on the cutting edge of that whenever we can, but we're all in a cultural world that makes certain possibilities available to us and others, medieval ones and ancient ones, not necessarily any longer available and makes us have to engage in differently in the world in all kinds of ways. The second question was actually, you know, what story are you telling about enlightenment with your book? You've kind of just answered that in part, right? Is there something else you would add? My additions to that are, are really, it's argued all the way through the book, but the, the 10, actually there were 10 theses on contemporary enlightenment. In other words, what do I think, if we're going to have something that we use the word enlightenment to claim or awakening or insight, where is it now in contemporary circumstances and where is it headed? Those points were the ones that 
right now make the most sense, or at least when I wrote the book, make the most sense to me. And that is that um, we can't think of enlightenment as a fixed goal that the Buddha attained and that we all strive to attain. I mean, there may be some dimension of what the Buddha attained to whatever extent through historical resources we can find out what that is that might be still applicable to us. But enlightenment for us will have to encompass encompass many other meanings, including the enlightenment of the European Age of Enlightenment, democratic revolution, gender revolution, all kinds of things. So um, enlightenment as a fixed goal, gone. Same for all people in all times or in all circumstances. That doesn't hold, because if you conceive of enlightenment in a Buddhist way, it unfolds dependent on particular circumstances, not on generic ones. Um, and so the enlightenment for some somebody is going to be different from somebody else, where enlightenment means insight, a more comprehensive view, an expansion, uh, some degree of maturation that occurs, some breakthrough onto new grounds that may be small. You know, I can just um, be enlightened about the, the extent of greed in my life and come to a realization and insight that uh, there's something there that I never recognized before. I take that as a moment of, of enlightenment, that enlightenment um, would be um, somehow omniscient or infinite, it, of course, is absurd, right? Human beings are finite. Um, I see no way out of our finitude, and therefore our enlightenment will be finite. That'll be limited by all of the conditions that give rise to it, all the historical conditions. So um, I can name some other points that I articulated in that last section. Enlightenment, from my point of view, will have to, will need to, and I think already has, include greater and greater levels of responsibility, that to the extent that we become enlightened global citizens, we will take responsibility for the planet. We will take responsibility for the survival and the well-being of other um, biological entities besides ourselves. And we will take responsibility for each other. All of those possible ways that responsibility can continue to expand makes sense to me. Uh, extension of possibility, new possibilities that we will come into that we, we couldn't have imagined in the future, in the past, I'm sorry, but with, that we will be able to imagine. Those will be, I think, a huge part of this. Now, those are all, those are all great. And, you know, hearing you talk about finitude in, in this way is just fantastic. Because I think once you do that, once you accept that you can't sneak some form of um, other world transcendence in the back door, it kind of forces you to face up to certain forms of reality with regards to our shared circumstances. And that's just, that's brilliant. That's, that's very, very good to hear. And when you talk about the word responsibility and increasing responsibility, that's, that in a sense, do you think when you wrote that you were, in a sense, thinking about some of the, the issues of justice in Buddhism that you spoke to before? Yes. Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, very much those. But others as well, um, issues, justice issues, responsibility for people without food and well-being in our own societies and then in neighboring societies and in others. Ultimately, ultimately, idealistically, in a global sense, that sense of responsibility is ours. I mean, we can't help but feel at least the tiniest bit of guilt and sense of responsibility when people are starving anywhere. Now, we don't necessarily act on them. In fact, we don't and can't act on those at, at all times. But we sense those. And I, I'm not sure 
in pre-modern and in earlier cultures, that was the case at all. I, I think that it wasn't. No, I don't see how it could be, right? Yep. It could only happen along a sort of imaginary plane, which, you know, no way lives up to the reality of what we see on our TVs and uh, screens. Yeah. I, I made one claim in the 10 theses at the end for contemporary enlightenment that, that I, I've, I think is highly debatable and um, maybe becoming even more dubious than when I made it. <laughs> and that's <laughs> Which one's that? I said, contemporary enlightenment, that is, any movement for us in a direction that we're really going to admire will be that we'll become more communally oriented, more collectively oriented. Um, that is, we'll take on a greater sense of responsibility for others and, in, in a sense, everyone. And I wrote that, well, that's counterintuitive because we all know that the modern West is as individualistic, no, more individualistic than any earlier society. And I made the point that just occurred to me when I wrote that was, I think one of the reasons that Indian, that is Hindu and Buddhist, spirituality and religion appealed to uh, 20th century Westerners was this deep individualism that was just emerging in humanity at the time Buddhism arose on the scene. That is, if you think about Buddhism, it is highly individualized, right? That karma is individual, right? Not collective so much. It's really about my karma and what's happening to me. If you think about meditation as the primary practice, right? That's what I do. Yes, we can do it together, but really um, it's something I do on my own. Um, every dimension of Buddhism is the emergence at that historical moment of individual uniqueness as a realization. And it's a huge cultural breakthrough. And Buddhism is the first place where that emerged, and, and in earlier forms of Hinduism as well. And it made Buddhism and Hinduism impressive to uh, modern Western youth, um, because they could look at that and said, yeah, this is really about, they were all, the, the youth were already highly individualized. Um, they could look at that and identify with it right away. Something was happening in India, as I think at that point, the most sophisticated society in the world that was culturally a global breakthrough. It took a long time for it to happen. Buddhism was the first religion not to be grounded in ethnic tribal identity, right? Prior to that, every religion was about our group, our linguistic group. Buddhism wasn't. After that, the religions that emerged, you know, even if they were initially Islam and Christianity, they broke away from that to become global traditions. Right? So the, the idea of individualism came to its pinnacle, I think, in modernity, where modern uh, democracy and capitalism were all grounds for individualizing ourselves. And the romantic focus on the uniqueness of all of us, all of that fit perfectly with Buddhist practice and conceptions. In the meantime, though, in, uh, in kind of post-modern thinking and post-whatever, we're beginning to realize that that individualism that um, grounded modernity is also problematic and that community sensibility is vital to us as individuals even, that um, we realize that who we are is a function of the culture and history surrounding us. We realize in evolutionary terms how we're tied together with other people. We have all of these realizations that make us go back to thinking that actually the, the prior to Buddhism, those religions had something 
important, right? They were about identity with others. Now, the, the limits on their otherness was it was just our group. Now it has to be, of course, not just other human beings on the planet, but all life on the planet, or perhaps life elsewhere as well. So my sense is that enlightenment in our sense will continue to expand to mean that a sense of our connectedness to others, to other communities, to other individuals, to other species uh, will grow and have to be part of any admirable sense we have about about people. The admirable people, people who are really going to admire will be individuals who have that expanded sense of connection to others. Okay, so here's what is possibly debatable about that. We have what's going on right now historically, a, a deep sense that um, there's a countercurrent and a revival of the kind of tribalism that I was thinking about. And where you talked about pessimism, I would raise a sense of cynicism and a sense of giving up on um, our identity with others, our connectedness with others. And uh, the contemporary capitalism being runaway greed on the part of privileged people who are able to um, live lives that nobody can, nobody else could even dream of, who have medical attention at a level that's that's truly transcendent, that is beyond what um, anybody else could imagine having at the time when other people have no medical attention, that the divisions between the rich and the poor or the highly educated and the uneducated are simply growing right now. And that is being exacerbated by any number of phenomena. And the advances that are taking place in medicine right now are not so much the democratization of medical attention. How do you get medicine out to everybody? It's the deepening of research into how to prolong the life of those few who have the almost infinite financial resources to pay for it. And that influence of money on not just medical um, attention, but in many areas of the world is at frightening prospects right now. It's, it's at a level that is deeply troublesome and makes my sense that we are more and more taking as an ideal our identification with others, people who have, are different in terms of sexual orientation or ethnic background or religious orientation, that we're moving in that direction. Yes, we are. Well, at the same time, this countercurrent is really going the other way. And while I am very upbeat about the former, the latter, which I take to be deeply cynical, is, to my mind, uh, a direction that is deeply troubling. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. And um, much of what you say resonates with me, too. There are a couple of points which I would probably say. Yeah, I think one of the unfortunate side effects of tribalism, the tribalism that we're seeing today, is that it's actually, um, at least on the left, it's come out of an earnest desire to resolve injustices in society. But it's it's done so at the expense of, I would say, a, a critical analysis of our current situation. You know, at least in a democracy, as I mentioned before, you have to capture the middle ground. And, you know, the middle ground is the mass of the voting public. 
although I find, you know, much of the, the political activism on the further left to be noble, I think it often ends up being a, an identity game which pushes further divisions amongst people within countries that are quite wealthy. And what we actually need is to give birth to a, a perhaps a new sense of us, which transcends those divides. And one of the issues we're facing, I think, both informationally and intellectually, all of us, including you and I, is the, the degree of complexity and overwhelm that comes with this global society we're currently inhabiting and the, the overload and overwhelm of stimulation. Uh, also in terms of knowledge, I mean, we just, we know so much, but are incapable physically, you know, our brains are just incapable of managing it all. And so we're one of the challenges I think we have this century is to find educational means, both for ourselves individually, but also in terms of educating the next generations on how to sift through and manage information and knowledge. And two of those areas will be, you know, collective justice, uh, collective identities and so forth. But it will need to involve some form of, of a new imagining of the ideal of togetherness, you know, which transcends tribal identities, as, as you mentioned, too. I think one thing that... Um, we need to find is, and this is where Buddhism could be useful, there's mindfulness, of course, but I think, as I argued before, we need a bit more than that, and that perhaps uh, qualifies your, your claims about religion. Um, we need practices and techniques that allow us to deal with degrees of overwhelm and that allow us to experience forms of opening to the other, whether it's local other, global other, or non-human other, without being overwhelmed and without solidifying these um, dichotomies of identities and groups. And it seems to be we're, we're hopefully in a temporary phase of retreat from some of the global idealism that you and I both know about. And perhaps that's just a recognition that it needs renewal. Um, again, if we look at the, the American, the American uh, century, which was the last one in which America was full on intents and purposes, the empire, it, it, it presented some great ideals, but it failed them on, in so many ways. And I think it's the same for the European Union. It presented many ideals and has failed them too. And I think that mirrors our, our sort of collective in ability to harness this sense of a global society for the betterment of the many. And as you rightly said, we seem to be in a phase where actually there's these splits again and the 0.1% of the super rich who can transcend the norms of everybody else is, is a consequence of that. Um, it's very complex. And I think I'd like to, to finish from your side with just two things. The first one is whether you have a response to, to what I've just said. And then uh, I want to do justice to your book because I think the points you make about enlightenment are really important. And I think that your book would be of great benefit to many thinking Western Buddhists and non-Western Buddhists. The fact that you have this principle of finitude in there is already, at least for me, a, a winning argument and uh, a winning form of praise for, for reading it. So perhaps you could at a point at the end about who you think would, would find your work interesting, and in particular your book on enlightenment. So quickly, um, response to what you said, which I, I um, was incredibly on the money. Left and right in the political spectrum need to resist division. Now, those divisive tendencies are dangerous right now. And if we're in a, a retreat from global ideals, um, let's hope it's temporary because we need them. Uh, and with regard to the, the middle ground, uh, we need to elevate that. And we can only do that with some deep sense of solidarity that we have to earn as intellectuals by non-exclusionary practices on our own. That we need to reimagine togetherness is really a great phrase. Um, and we, we completely do because the grounds of togetherness are currently failing us. 
previous grounds. We need new grounds, and uh, they have to be significantly elevated. But I think we can, and uh, there I will... Uh, I will stick with an optimistic position, um, not that we don't have enormous issues to overcome. Um, second question, who um, who might uh, respond to this book? Well, I've gotten a lot of responses, actually, from people, um, primarily from people who are Buddhists um, and uh, practicing Buddhists, some from scholars who are engaged in Buddhist studies. But um, and, and there's great appreciation for it. It's being used in a couple of settings, in fact, as um, uh, grounds for discussion, whether any of the points that I've made in the book can be used to help form their own or reform or reimagine their various grounds of identity with each other and to rethink their practices and so on. But I've also gotten some responses from non-Buddhists, this book and uh, a previous one, who, although all the Buddhism that comes up in it may be annoying. Uh, they're, they're, they're never less interested because what I'm talking about really isn't Buddhism. My books are inevitably about a Buddhist take on real issues. So on contemporary um, notions of wisdom. What would environmental look like from a Buddhist point of view? So, uh, so I'm really taking up contemporary issues and trying to figure out what Buddhism might offer by way of help on bringing about solutions to any of those issues. Great. And that brings us right back to the beginning of our conversation, which is that, that point you made about bringing those two together, contemporary questions and a contribution from Buddhist thought and practice. Dale, it's, um, I've taken up quite a lot of your time and it's been uh, great talking with you. And I will uh, apologize for all the digressions, but uh, it was uh, really stimulating and th th there's so much that could be spoken about and that needs to be spoken about. And I think this has certainly been a, a useful contribution to the, the shared discussion many of us are having in uh, you know, homes and dharma halls and pubs and, and workplaces. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Gratitude to you, and um, I'm happy to join you as an imperfect Buddha. Drive soul, honey. Can handle. You need a something else.
For me only 